We're going to be looking in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, if you'd like to turn there. I want to read for us from chapter 2. This is uh, Nehemiah chapter 2. I'll read the first 10 verses. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been in his pre- I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, "Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart." I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, "May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire?" The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and I gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. We've been looking at what the Bible can teach us about being reused. What, what the biblical writers had in mind when they talked about being completed, or as the King James Version translates, being made perfect. What does it take for me to become the me that God intends me to be and that I'll love being? We've seen repeatedly that in that process, God brings us insight, brings us to decision, and then to implementation of the decision. But we can have the insight and even make a decision based on it and still fail to implement the decision. There are a number of reasons for that, but one of them is this. Implementation is hard, and we think it shouldn't be. If the insight is God-given and the decision is God-pleasing, why shouldn't the implementation just be natural? Why shouldn't it just flow? If God is in it, shouldn't that happen? In Christian circles, people talk about God opening doors. The image actually comes from the Bible, from the Apostle Paul, who wrote, a great door for effective work has opened for me. And when people talk about God opening a door for them, we assume it means that everything just falls into place. But when Paul talked about God opening a door for him, that's not what he was thinking. And it's not what he said. He was thinking of effective ministry, not smooth sailing, and they're not the same thing. We mistakenly assume that if God has opened a door for us, everything will be easy. 
If it's not, if it gets hard, we think we must have made a mistake, that God didn't really open that door. But the open door Paul was talking about was in Ephesus in Asia Minor. He went through that open door, and he found that it led both to effective work. Many people chose to believe in Jesus and turn their lives to God, but also to painful trouble. It was while he was there doing effective work that anti-Christian activists started a riot, which came close to costing Paul his life and did cause some of his friends arrest and imprisonment. Even so, Paul never doubted that God had opened this door. He didn't interpret hardship as evidence that his course of action was outside of God's will. When Paul was going to Jerusalem to deliver famine relief to the church there, a highly respected man named Agabus warned the church that if Paul went to Jerusalem, he would be arrested, bound, and handed over to the authorities. Now, the church heard that, and they believed that this was a message from God. This was a prophecy. And Paul's church friends tried to dissuade him from going. Paul, you can't go. This is what the Lord is saying. You can't do this. Here's what Paul answered. Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He did not interpret prison and hardship as a closed door. Isn't that interesting? He didn't even see death as a closed door. If we allow hardship to stop us from implementing the decisions that we've made, that we thought were God's work based on God's insight, then we're never going to get anything done. In this world, Jesus said, you will have trouble. That's true whether you're in God's will or not. Whether you're implementing good decisions or bad decisions, you will have trouble. Paul goes so far as to say, as paraphrased in the message, anyone who wants to live all out for Christ is in for a lot of trouble. There are a number of examples of the process that we've seen, insight, decision, implementation, in the life of the Old Testament hero, Nehemiah. They occur and then reoccur throughout the book. And as we're going to see, implementation was not easy for him either. This is verse 1. The words of chapter 1 of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in the citadel of Susa. Now let's just stop there. By the time the story takes place, Nehemiah was probably reaching middle age. He was a successful civil servant with a high-ranking government job from which he received good salary and plenty of perks. At the time, he was wintering in Susa, which was the, the winter capital of the Persian Empire, an expatriate from Israel living the good life. Far away in his home country, Efforts were ongoing to resettle Jerusalem, which had been devastated by war and by forced exile. But that was all pretty far removed from Nehemiah's world. It's possible, it, likely even, I think, that he had never seen Jerusalem. Rebuilding its walls was not in his wheelhouse. And that brings us to our first point. People who are serious about serving God don't have to go looking for insights. They need to go looking for God, and insight will find them. If you've promised God your service, God will take you up on it. 
Everything was business as usual for Nehemiah. When his brother and some of his brother's friends came for a visit, I don't know how often Nehemiah got visits with family. Maybe this was really special. Maybe it was just fairly routine that they came. Either way, I doubt he had an inkling of how this ordinary family gathering was going to turn his life upside down. Now, there's something in this passage that we mustn't miss. It's really important. Nehemiah listened. I'm not as good at that as I ought to be. Nehemiah listened to his brother and to his brother's friends. Listening is a principal skill of those insightful people who are going through reul. They listen to each other and they listen to God. They tune the ears of their heart to the God channel. They're always listening for him. As Nehemiah listened to his brother Hanani and his friends, he learned that the efforts to repopulate Jerusalem and rebuild the city were stalled. People were discouraged. Their surroundings were very unsafe. The situation was grave. And he heard tidings from Jerusalem that just caused his heart to well up with emotion. Sometimes, and especially for people who are close to God, that can be an indication that God is at work. Under the influence of this great emotion, Nehemiah did what anyone who is serious about Reuel will do. He prayed. Prayer provides the support beams upon which the renewed person's life is built. As he prayed, a thought slowly formed in his mind. At first it was just, something has to be done. Something has to be done. Then as he continued to pray, and in chapter 1 we find out that he prayed about this for days. He fasted and he prayed. As he kept praying, it became, maybe I could do something. And then finally, I think God expects me to do something. That was insight. And it came as he prayed. How often has happened to me? Insights into what I should do, change, try, even repent, often come as I'm praying. And when they come while I'm praying, I just pay special attention to that. I think this is God speaking to me. Now, insight can be a troubling thing. I'm sure it was for Nehemiah. He had a life. He had a good life that was financially secure, comfortable, meaningful. He had good work to do. He had friends, constantly meeting interesting people. It's crazy to think about leaving that life. I wonder how many times he went back and forth between, God can't want me to do this. I must not be understanding this right. And this is what God wants me to do. At some point during those days, Nehemiah came to the place where he said to God, Lord, if this is what you want me to do, I'll do it. I don't know how, but I'll do it. I will obey you. Now that's decision. Now it's true the text doesn't say specifically that Nehemiah made a decision, but we know that he did because he had a plan, which he was set to implement. And we see that in the last verse of chapter 1. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, I was cupbearer to the king. By the way, cupbearer is a high position. It's a trusted position in the government. Now, I said Nehemiah prayed, but that's not all he did. He also offered himself to God to be part of the answer to his prayers. When you pray for something, if you're not also offering yourself to God as part of the answer, something's wrong. 
we can think that this whole process of renewal or holiness, sanctification, renewal, call it whatever you want, we can think of it as something that happens to us when it's really something that happens with us. That's by God's design. God will not do our part, and we can't do his part. What he works in, we are required to work out. In Paul's daring phrase, we are God's fellow workers. So Nehemiah had an insight. Something has to be done for Jerusalem. Everybody has insights, sometimes profound insights. What set Nehemiah's apart? I think one of the most important lessons we can take from this story is that when Nehemiah had an insight, he prayed. And he kept praying. That was the difference between a human program and divine power. And while he was praying, he came up with a plan. Now look at verse 1, chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. Now, the implementation stage was at hand. Did you notice this is the month of Nisan? In chapter 1, when I read to you from the first verses of chapter 1, when Nehemiah first had an insight that something must be done, it was Kislev. That means that at least four, maybe as much as many as five months had gone by. Months of praying and thinking, and perhaps of gathering up his courage. A person in the, the process of renewal mustn't be impatient with himself or herself or with God. The prophet was right. He who trusts will not make haste. I've noticed in my life, in the church's life, that there is often a lag time between when God tells a person what he wants done and when the opportunity arises to actually do it. That's no accident. God intends for us to use that time to pray and to plan. So four to five months passed between Nehemiah's original insight and the implementation of the plan. And who knows, if he had gone to the king the day after having his insight, the king might have refused to listen. We know from the book of Esther that Persian kings allowed no one to cry or frown or even look unhappy in their presence. But after months of praying, Nehemiah went into the king and he let his real emotions show through. When the king noticed and asked him why he looked so sad, Nehemiah was afraid. There's good reason for that. Persian kings were a very capricious lot. The king might fire Nehemiah on the spot because he looked sad. On a bad day, he might do something much worse. A person could be killed for an offense like that. But on this day, the king listened and then asked Nehemiah what he wanted him to do. What do you want? The next line is a great one. This is the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. I prayed to God, I answered the king. What a skill that is, to be able to talk and listen to people and to God at the same time. Those extemporaneous, in-the-moment prayers, they are a vital part of the life of a Jesus follower. But it's important to understand that flash prayers, like the one in chapter 2, are built on the longer prayers, like the one in chapter 1. You will never thrive if you're trying to get by on 10-second prayers. 
uttered in moments of need or of opportunity even. For those prayers to be effective, they must be built on the foundation of a regular, familiar interaction with God. People who try to get by on 10-second prayers will end up not praying at all. Text messages between spouses, they may be very helpful. Do you want me to pick up milk at the store? They may even be uplifting. I love you. But try to build a marriage on them, and you're headed for ruin. Try to build a life with God on 10-second prayers, and it's not going to happen. Notice that when the king asked, what is it you want? Nehemiah was ready with an answer. See, that's the result of those four months of praying and thinking. His answer comes in three parts. Let me go to Jerusalem to oversee the reconstruction of the city wall. Give me letters to the governors of the area. They need to know that you're on board with this. And order your supply and support personnel to provide me the necessary materials. It's obvious that he had thought this through. But realize that talking to the king was only the first step in implementing his decision to do something for Jerusalem. He didn't know what he was going to find when he got there. What trouble he would encounter, and he encountered plenty. What needs he was going to have, what support was going to be available. If Nehemiah had waited until he had it all figured out, he never would have done a thing. We can't see around corners. We can't plan for every contingency. We're not smart enough. But we sure wish we were. And why? So that we can be safe. God wants us to change the world. And we want to be safe. God wants us to risk all on him, and we want to guarantee. God's word is a light for our feet. We want a satellite photo of our future. When you've had an insight and made a decision, if you wait to act until you know all the implementation steps, you'll probably never even take the first one. But Nehemiah got started. He went to Jerusalem. That was only the first step. It was only the beginning. He didn't know where it would lead. But then he didn't need to. He knew to whom it would lead. And so then, Nehemiah had an insight. He didn't hurry and file it away. He didn't say, oh, yeah, that's a good one. I'll have to tell somebody about that. He prayed about it. He lived with it, which is a critical step in all of this. On the basis of that insight, he made a decision. And he made it before he knew all that it would entail. It's four or five months before he knew what to do and was ready to implement his decision. And even then, he could only see the first couple of steps. And yet he took them. I read somewhere years ago that an impala, not the car, but the animal, an impala can jump as far as 30 feet and can clear a height of 10 feet. But an impala will stop in front of a three or four foot stone fence because it can't see where its feet will land. An impala has to see where its feet will land before it will jump. The lion will have it for supper because it won't jump if it can't see where it's going to land. If Nehemiah had waited to see where he would land, he never would have jumped. But he did. He didn't know everything, but he knew what was the next thing. He knew enough to get started. Now there's another thing in this passage, which we see again and again throughout the Nehemiah story. And you see this process of insight, 
decision implementation throughout the story. When you work out an insight that comes from God, when you decide to act on it and begin to implement your decision in concrete, real-life practices, you will run into obstacles. Nehemiah did. It was evident that God was working in his life. It was clear that God was calling him to lead the effort to restore Jerusalem. The gracious hand of his God was upon him. Those are his own words. God was answering his prayers, and yet there were obstacles. For Nehemiah, the obstacles came from within and from without. From without in the form of a group of men who opposed his efforts at every turn. They questioned his motives. They ridiculed his competency. They did everything they could to stop him, up to and including violence. But some obstacles came from within, from the very people that Nehemiah considered his partners. Now, we've seen this before, but we need to see it again, and we mustn't forget it. Just because God is in something doesn't mean there will be no obstacles. In fact, it probably means the opposite. If God's in it, there will be obstacles. For us, the obstacles will sometimes come from without. Let me give you an example. We have an insight. The people that we really admire, that we want to be like, they all go to church. So based on that insight, we decide we're going to go to church, and we implement our decision the next week. But then our employer changes our shift schedule, and and now we don't get off work until midnight on Saturdays. Or perhaps our spouse doesn't want to go to church. He or she says, why do you want to go to church? Sunday's the only day that we have time together, and we can get some things done around the house. It's not like you have to go to church to be a Christian. Those are examples of obstacles from without. But there may be obstacles that come from within, from within you. We're going to look at this more closely in two weeks in a powerful passage from Romans. Sometimes the obstacles come from within in regards to going to church. You stay out too late on Saturdays, you don't feel like getting up. You begin to make excuses, or you feel out of place, or you see someone in the row ahead of you with whom you've had disagreements in the past. They aren't problems that are coming from without, they're inside of you. Why does it have to be so hard to do the right thing? Why, when we're trying to do the right thing, doesn't God smooth over all the difficulties? I'm sure that the answers to those questions are manifold and complex. I want to suggest just two. The first is this, and we're not going to like it. Our Father wants us to toughen up, to be strong. He wants full-grown, strong and confident sons and daughters. And he knows the only way he'll ever get them is if they go through the process of overcoming obstacles. You ever notice the refrain that repeats throughout the letters to the seven churches of the Revelation? To him who overcomes. Over and over again, Jesus says, to him who overcomes. Comes Not to him who sits on the sofa, not to him who knows the most, but to him who overcomes. Long ago, Isaac Watts, Isaac Watts was the 17th century Chris Tomlin, wrote all kinds of wonderful hymns people are still singing today. Long ago, he wrote, must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought? 
to win the prize and sail through bloody seas? No, he knew that wasn't going to happen. Our Heavenly Father wants his children to have the experience of overcoming adversity. He wants you to have that experience. And then this. It's not only important to God that we overcome obstacles. He wants us to overcome them in company with him. He wants to be with us in trouble. He wants to use those times to grow our confidence in him, our joy in his salvation, and the breadth of our service. If you're in such a time right now, so a time of adversity, of sickness, relationship trouble, financial difficulty, you just want to get out of it. But God wants you to get something out of it. He wants to use this hardship in your renewal. He wants a you who trusts him more, who is less afraid, and is more compassionate. Our Heavenly Father wants adventurers for the kingdom. He wants men and women, teens and children, who face difficulty with his strength and with unshakable confidence in him. He wants men and women about whom he can say, did you see what my son did today? Did you see what my daughter did today? Think of how you went through the last real hardship you faced. Could God have said that about you? Think about your next hardship, the one that's right around the corner, the one you're about to face. Will he say that about you next time? Implementation is hard. It's tough. We need to be tougher. And we can be because of the grace of our God. Now let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we, all of us, every one of us sitting in these, this room, hear those words that are sweeter than any music from the lips of our master. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Work in us to that end. Lord, you know what we're made out of. We're made out of dust, and we get blown here and there. We can't do this without you. But we will do it with you. For the sake of the name of Jesus. Jesus.